0: It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Author and New York Times writer, Eduardo Porter, says the coronavirus pandemic is not a common threat. It's hitting some populations much harder than others.
1: In Chicago, the share of African Americans dying of COVID is double their share in the population. You know, the death rate of Latinos in New York City is double the rate for non-Hispanic whites. You know, if you go to Manhattan, the infection rate per capita is about
0: half or even less than half than it is in the Bronx. The virus has affected the poor, low income, and people of color disproportionately. Porter says America's stunted social safety net is partly to blame. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute drives change through dialogue, leadership, and action to help solve the greatest challenges of our time. Today's discussion was held by the Economic Opportunities Program at the Aspen Institute. Long before the COVID-19 crisis, social health in the United States was on a downward spiral because of racial animus. In his book, American Poison, Eduardo Porter writes that racial hostility has hindered the growth of institutions like organized labor, public education, and the social safety net. Now, the stunted growth of these institutions is resulting in real consequences. The U.S. has over one million cases of COVID-19, and tens of millions of Americans are unemployed. Porter says the situation is dire partly because millions are without health insurance, the unemployment insurance system is insufficient, and many workers don't have sick leave or child care. Today, Porter talks about his background, book, racial divisions, and the coronavirus. He speaks with Maureen Conway, who leads the Economic Opportunities Program at the Aspen Institute. Here's Conway.
2: So Eduardo, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really a pleasure to have you and to see you. So the first and kind of obvious question for you is, so for you with sort of your significant and global career in economics journalism and business reporting, um, how did you come to write a book about the role of racial hostility in America?
1: So I have two stories to kind of answer your question. One is old and one is relatively new. So please bear with me for a minute. So. My awareness of the American social contract started sort of taking shape, you know, hazy and inarticulate when I was a kid. I lived in Mexico. I moved to Mexico when I was six to be closer to my mom's family. But I came back to the U.S. uh, pretty much every summer to Phoenix to visit my, my grandparents who lived there. And one of my first images of the United States, or at least one of the first images that I can remember having, was their house. It was not really fancy, you know, it was in a working class neighborhood, you know, pretty far from the money. But, you know, it had this wall to wall carpeting, it was, you know, air conditioned all the time, had this big TV and a cassette deck and an eight track technologies that most of you've probably never heard of you know had a huge refrigerator and they had a pickup truck and a pontiac and a trailer which they would you know take up every summer to Sedona and you know park at this trailer park overlooking the Oak Creek you know and you know just to, my, they were not rich uh, my my grandfather was a retired electrician who had moved from Chicago to Phoenix to work on the Salt River project and my grandmother was a librarian they had stories to tell about soup kitchens during the great depression Um, But, you know, they were retired on Social Security, and they lived a a frugal life, but it was really not an uncomfortable one. Now, I remember being there with them and and thinking that where I lived in Mexico, electricians didn't get anywhere like this kind of life. Um, I was raised in a privileged situation, but in a country with enormous inequities. And and comparing that Mexican reality to, you know, my grandparents' house, the electrician's house in Phoenix, I kind of was forced to accept that the American social contract was better. You know, like no other country I knew, and actually no other country I came to know for a long time after that, it 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 seemed to have created, uh, succeeded in offering, you know, ordinary working class people a true shot at prosperity. And then, you know, in the 1990s, at the end of the 1990s, I returned to live in the United States um, Mm -hmm. uh, after after college and having lived in a few other places. So when I got here, I lived first in New York, and then I moved to LA for a few years, uh, writing for the Wall Street Journal about Latinos in the United States. And what struck me then was how little America resembled these childhood memories I had, you know? And and As a reporter, you know, pouring through the poverty stats and the numbers on showing Americans really dismal health uh, situation, uh, statistics about kind of like really um, um, threadbare social cohesion. The idea that then that kind of like took over in my mind was how could a country this rich provide such a crummy deal to so many of its people? you know? And so I came to kind of understand that, that my grandparents really lived an exception. It was not the rule. They achieved their prosperity through a really narrow window of opportunity within a few decades after World War II. I also now understand that that window was really narrow because it was really only open for whites. And the question that popped up from my mind at the time, and that I've been chewing on for ever since then, and from which this book ultimately emerged, is why did this window close when so many Americans were still on the outside? You know? And it was around then that I kind of took interest in a lot of the social science about racial divisions. You know, there's there's been a lot of research by economists, by sociologists, political scientists, psychologists, um, about kind of like how intense racial divisions are in the United States. I mean, you can call them, there's a bunch of names for them. You can call it contempt, or you can call it fear, or bigotry, racism. But there was all this research about how these feelings stand in the way of developing the kind of empathetic empathetic thinking that underpins the sort of like richer social safety nets that help pull other societies together. You know, there's research about how immigrant kids entering public schools in, in California encouraged American parents to pull their kids out and put them in private schools instead. There's research about how cities with more diverse communities spend less on public goods like trash, trash collections and, and street maintenance. Um, there's re- research on how white Protestants put less in the collection basket at church as the share of blacks in their congregations rose. And so my aha moment, like kind of the epiphany, was was when, when I was living in L.A., uh, um, you know, which was an enormously balkanized city. And, and looking through these stats and looking through the kind of like the dismal social and health outcomes and economic outcomes for much of the population of the United States, you know, the thought that gelled in my mind is, why doesn't the U.S. behave like the prosperous country it is? And my conclusion, I couldn't really quite escape the conclusion was, that racial divisions just got in the way of empathy. Now, that's the old, long, admittedly, part of the story. The new side of the story, and I promise it's shorter, uh, um, happened just a few years ago um, when Donald Trump decided to run for president. From his very first speech, where he blasted Mexicans as rapists and thugs streaming illegally over the border, the president has worked really hard to rekindle the racial and ethnic divisions that lay just below the surface of our political consciousness, you know? His overt racial appeal to racial animus came to me like a slap in the face, you know? It reminded me kind of abruptly of how racial hostility could further poison our future as demographic change transforms our racial and ethnic reality, you know? In those speeches, you know, Trump portrayed himself as the voice of white America, you know, that America which has forever held the reins of power, building the walls and pulling up the drawbridge to stop the rise of a truly multi-ethnic, multi-racial nation. And witnessing such a large share of white America circling the wagons to kind of protect their historical privilege, I mean, I felt I just had to write this book, you know? I just had to make the case that these politics have forever damaged the fabric of the nation. They are undermining our social contract. And they're really, in my view, turning us into a failed state.
2: So I just wanna do a little on terms. I mean, your your title notes kind of the issue of racial hostility. The book starts actually with that story of backlash against immigrants, mainly against, against Mexicans you know, which some might call a ethnicity divide rather than a racial divide. So can you just lay out a little bit about how you think about the concept of race versus the concept of ethnicity? And, and do you see these categories kind of shifting or changing in some way? And I'm also just curious, sort of, you know, as you worked on the on the book, did did your sort of understanding or sense of of what race means, did that change at all as you were working on this? Um, That's
1: a really interesting question, Maureen, and it's a question that, you know, people at the Census Bureau have been, like, grappling with forever. Um, As a little aside, I remember covering the uh, results of the 2000 census, and as part of that coverage, I I, I discovered that they had had all this trouble about whether they were going to use an an ethnicity question alongside the racial question. Was it going to go before the racial question or after the racial question? And how they decided to frame this, where they decided to put it, whether they decided to include it or not, was going to really alter the the distribution of, of responses. And so, I mean, one of the conclusions that I draw from this is that race is really kind of like a social and a political construct. It's not like a biological truth. It's, it's more like a, a product of, of our political understandings, our social relations, and at the end of our, our, our bureaucratic organization, you know? Um, and, 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 and just to answer how I think race fits alongside ethnicity, in a way, I, I think as a social and political construct, as, as, a, as a tribal dividing line, um, they're kind of indistinguishable. You know, um, they are. Um, and, and, and in fact, as a, as, a, as a system of political organization, you can say that they also share um, things with religious difference and, you know, other cultural differences or, you know, differences in language. These, I think that the way that they, they shape our society and they shape our politics are by bundles of otherness, you know, mm-hmm. Um, and and it, with, w- that are used for organizational purposes to, you know, to preserve uh, the, the power and the privilege of one group versus another. So I, I started off, even started off with this book with a sense that, you know, I, I don't think that there is a really relevant difference between these two terms when it comes to how they've been used to organize American society. And I came out of writing that book even believing that even more strongly, and especially by, you know, like looking at the political narrative out my window and how, you know, arguments that have been used in a very specific black, white, racial context were now being deployed um, against Mexican uh, immigrants, which on the census form can put whatever race they want, and they have their own little ethnic box, which is Hispanic or non-Hispanic. Seemed to me that these things were just basically, you know, bureaucratic differences that did not really have any specific social or political uh, um, reality of their own. You know, the most consequential racial division in the history of the United States is that between whites and blacks. Well, even as I'm saying that, I, I, I feel that I'm, I'm being remiss for for uh, uh, not referencing the the history of, of racial violence against Native Americans. But to be fairly honest, to be very honest, it is it is an experience that I did not cover in the book. It is an experience that I am not uh, uh, very well educated in. But just to throw that out there, you know, even as I as I say this, I also say, well, the 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 black white. Racial dividing line is not the only one. It's hardly the only one. Racial otherness has been deployed by whites to assert their privilege versus Jews and central and central and southern Europeans in the early decades of the 20th century, against the Chinese and against the Japanese, and you know very definitely up to you know very recent speeches from our current president against Mexican and Central American immigrants. These categories are actually not even very solid in time or place. These shifts. So Italians and Southern Europeans were the racial others in the American Northeast of the early 20th century, you know, and in fact if you think of the Immigration Act of 1925, it was basically designed to stop Central Europeans and Jews from coming into the United States, and Portuguese and and, and Italians. Um, But then these groups whitened over the course of American history as they became richer, and you know, as some research has found, the great migration of African Americans from the South into the Northeast and the Midwest encouraged white America to invite you know, the Jews and the Central Europeans and the, and, and, and the Portuguese into the fold of whiteness. Just as a final thought, I think that for a long time, the debate over racial divisions in the United States has kind of missed this part of the story, this part that there is a lot of complexity around the notion of racial divisions. Um, and I think it's critical today to acknowledge it, you know, because as I think I pointed out a moment ago, I think that immigrants, especially, you know, poor immigrants from Mexico and Central America, you know, the guys picking your strawberries and delivering your seamless are amongst the most vulnerable racial others today, directly threatened by the president and his supporters.
2: I want to shift a little to, you know, you, one of your con, uh, contentions in the book is sort of that the weakness of our social safety net um, Stems from this sort of legacy of racial animus, and I'm wondering if you can just kind of unpack that a little bit. You know, you sort of uh, you've spent some time in in Harlan County, Kentucky, and maybe you can sort of say so. So, how does that work for people there to somehow be convinced that it's important for them to deny people a benefit that you know they don't even know, don't even live in their county? and, and by so doing, end up de- denying themselves that, that very same benefit. You know,
1: uh, just, to, just, just to come clean here, I'm not, I don't have any training in psychology and I did not really explore the individual psychology that leads to these outcomes that you're talking about, these attitudes that you're talking about. And I think that is a shortcoming of my book. Um, I just kind of like just went and looked at them and saw that they were there but i have very little understanding of you know how does an education that's permeated with racial memes and racial racially coded thoughts help to to create an, a character that includes you know that 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 has uh, such very very deeply embedded uh, um, um, racist biases uh, um as an adult but but um but the the contradiction does very much you know Come to my mind. It's one of those things that really slaps you in the face, um, because you know w- what is true is the people in Harlan, Kentucky, uh, are are some of the people that are most reliant on federal aid in the co- in, in the entire country. You know, there's like ten counties in the United States, maybe eleven, where over half the personal income, uh, on average, of people there comes from federal programs. You know, from food stamps to Social Security to Medicaid. And Harlan, Kentucky, I mean, more than 50% of their income comes from the feds, consistently votes for politicians that oppose big government and any sort of expansion of the social safety net. I mean, I was there once uh, at a town hall when the past governor who was a, a tea party stalwart guy called Matt Bevin, And he was there, you know, talking about bears in your trash and, you know, with a a group of, of locals gathered around there. And everybody was like, kind of like grunting and assenting. And suddenly he went, he kind of like started talking about how, how undeserving people were taking advantage of Medicaid and like laying on their couch and getting handouts from the feds. And the people in that audience really came to life, you know, the applause rippled through the hall. It was like a crazy change in in energy, you know? Um, And and, and I think that though though Harlan and other similar areas in Appalachia are really overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly white. um, I mean, I think Harlan is like, in in the census comes up at like 97% non-Hispanic white. I think nonetheless, their opposition to bigger government is still couched in that kind of, of rhetoric about undeserving others, lazy others, you know, corrupt others. And so thoughts that I heard in a county that really has no immigrants was how can we take care of immigrants if we can't even take care of ourselves? As an argument against a broader social safety net. And 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 you know, and it's not just in, in Appalachia, these kinds of um, th- these kinds of memes and thoughts pop up in other places that Probably have never seen a person of color or a, a Hispanic or an immigrant. Um, there's this other place that I, I write a little bit about, which is in Fremont, in Nebraska. Um, there are really no immigrants in Fremont, Nebraska. Maybe you know ten. Um, but in 2010 and again in 2014, the people of Fremont, Nebraska voted in referenda for the toughest municipal ordinance against illegal immigrants in the United States. You know it. It barred uh, employers from hiring illegal immigrants, which is already in federal law, so I don't know why they thought they had to do that again, but they put it in. And then they had an additional provision barring landlords from taking uh, illegal immigrants as tenants. Now, again, this is a place where there are no illegal immigrants. There are barely any immigrants, period. Uh, but still, the sense of threat from a, you know, an abstraction um, was very real. And so kind of like to maybe to connect that better to your question, Maureen, um, maybe the, the thought is, and and, and right now I'm, I'm coming to think about how a lot of the vote in the 2016 election for, for President Trump um, was in a lot of in counties where there were not a lot of, of people of color and not a lot of immigrants. So it's kind of like an argument, a political argument about how you know, brown the immigrants were bad for us, played best or played particularly powerfully in places that did not really experience immigrants in 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 a day to day life, for whom immigrants or people of color are more of a an abstraction. And I sort of think that how these things affect the social safety net are as well like that. They're detached. It's not like you perceive, you know, there's a lot of, you know, Latinos and African-Americans in my neighborhood. And then, oh, yeah, I can see that they're really lazy and living off of handouts. And that's how I build my belief. I think the beliefs are mediated through the political system. And in fact, the less you know about the real lives of people, uh, of people of color, of immigrants, uh, the, the easier it is for you to assume these kinds of attitudes that it's these guys that are just, you know, like leeches milking, milking the, the federal government.
2: I, I wanted to also ask you about sort of the the labor movement and you spend some time writing a, a little bit about it in, in your book. And, um, you know, and obviously sort of the labor movement, it's, it's only can be successful by sort of that's people, it's a union, people working together in sort of solidarity towards a, towards a common purpose. And yet you sort of describe how, some of the issues of racial animus kind of um, weakened it. It's and it sort of has a complicated history growing up out of immigrant laborers, you know. But there's also so, it, but it's n- obviously not strong in the moment. But there has been a resurgence of, of labor activism in recent years, both um, within traditional uni- unions and in alternative forms. And we are seeing much more diverse kinds of labor organizations. So. You know, how do you see sort of the role of worker organizing in the time of a very diverse workforce? How do you see that kind of going forward? And do you see any models of sort of worker voice or worker power that are working well?
1: I I write about the labor movement in American Poison just to underscore how racism made it tough to create the kind of institutions that would um, help improve um, the working conditions of, 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 of American men and women. Um, you know, that, that it's, I, I noted in the history of, of organized labor, how divisions of race, you know, racism, you know, kind of like made it impossible to create a, you know, cross racial, cross ethnic labor movement that, in my view, would have been much stronger uh, uh, and much more powerful. Um, and, and 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 so just racism got in the way, that's just one particular instance in wh- how I see uh, racism warping our institutions in a way that undermines us as a society. But now thinking about the presence and into the future. I mean, I think, you know, things like the fight for 15 do sort of like justify a hope that kind of new kinds of labor activism might improve jobs and living standards. And uh, and, and so I, I really take, a, take a, 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 a a lot of hope from that. But I would still say that resurgence is perhaps a strong word here. I mean, we are living in a country in which most workers do not have voice. I mean, the unionization rate is what, around 7%? Um, and, and as far as I can tell, it's been, you know, it has not rebounded. It's pretty much either, either stuck or in continuous decline. Um, and, but, and, but I would agree that one of the most important challenges we have to overcome now to improve the lives of working women and men is to find ways to give workers voice, to give them more leverage at the bargaining table. uh, And and that goes through some form of labor organization. What kind of models are available out there? You know, you look around the world, people talk a lot about Germany, right? Where they have things like sectoral bargaining, where you're bargaining, you know, you're sitting around the table and you're bargaining for, um, you know, the entire steel industry um, or the, the entire automaking industry. And That is kind of an effective way of what they, what they call taking wages out of competition. So you're not going to compete by, by paying less. Um, in Germany, they also, there's also uh, union representatives on corporate boards, which also helps, you know, companies keep the interest of their workers in mind. Now, whether that can work in the American political system is uncertain and I would not hold my breath. I mean, I'm kind of trying to remember back when when uh, the Volkswagen opened a plant, was it in one of the Carolinas? And the, the German chief executive was encouraging the union to the workers to join the union. And it was the governor of the state that actually came out against it, uh, trying to stop them from unionizing. So anyhow, I, I, I'm not sure that looking to Germany, um, um, it, it, I mean, it would be great, but I think we have several political hurdles between now and then. And then the broader thought, the broader thought connecting it to my general thinking in, in, in American Poison, is that to succeed, the labor movement really needs to invite the new America in. You know? And the new America today, it means people of color, and actually, very especially, immigrants and their kids. Um, and that we have good models out there. Uh, the Service Employees International Union has been actually great. At working with uh, Latino immigrant communities for a long, long time, I'm thinking way back to the 1990s, the Justice for Janitors campaign on the, in the on the West Coast. Um, Unite Here the, for hotel uh, hotel workers is also really good, and they happen to have memberships that are extremely diverse, with lots of immigrants, lots of Latinos, but not exclusively uh, um, uh, Latinos. And so, I, I think that that these kinds of 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 unions which actually not coincidentally are the strongest unions in the country, uh, suggest to us that you know a, la- a labor movement of the future to have any power has to be very aggressive about being about everybody about representing everybody and it 's not super clear to me that the entire labor movement understands this um, and I'm, I'm thinking you know not that long ago to um, the, the like the early mid two thousands, the AFL CIO had a real hard time trying to support um, um, immigration reform. You know, there was this effort under the George W. Bush administration to to create an an, a, a, an immigration reform package that would that would uh, open a road towards towards legalization and ultimately citizenship for undocumented immigrants in the United States. And the, I remember the AFL was really twisted into a pretzel uh, over that. It um, kind of like saw the idea of immigrant work as in way a a competition to native workers. And so, I mean, so there's just to say that it's not really clear to me that the entire labor movement has really thought this through. Um, But um, I do think that this has to be in a really overt and important part of the strategy. Um, now, um, I think that these new models that you're referring to kind of fight for 15 type, they're really interesting strategies. They're not going after, you know, collective bargaining, but they're going after legislation and changing legislation at the state level has proven, you know, they've been able to do this. And, uh, so I think that that is, we should be looking for new levers beyond the traditional, you know, kind of like, you know, sitting down with management to re- negotiate wages and, and, and benefits. But I think that ultimately this is a political battle. And I think that the stronger the labor movement makes itself by including more of, of this country, the stronger it will be to, to, to wage it. When mm-hmm. um, maybe, but I have one last little thought about this. I'm, I don't want to ramble on too long, but I think COVID is gonna raisesn't a question for me. Um, because, and and I think I was talking about this with you before, Maureen, it was that I kind of suspect that coming out of COVID, the the push for automation in companies across the country is going to be very strong. Mm -hmm. The kind of like worker replacement ethos that has been with us for some time is going to come out resurgent out of this, you know, for the standard health reasons, gosh, you know, my workers get this thing and I can't keep my factory open, so let's get rid of workers kind of thing. So I see that, and so I think that the job for organized labor right now is gonna get way more difficult. It's gonna get really, really tough. And so, you know, I think that the argument for really strategically thinking this through and building political power is just all the, most, all the more important.
0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. What would you do for a stranger? Sean Zahir donated part of his liver to a little girl he'd never met.
1: Honestly, honestly speaking, it was a quick, quick decision. Because the way that I was raised, if you're in a position to help, it's your responsibility to do so.
0: Zahir later met the two-year-old who received his donation and became friends with her dad, Wajaha Ali, who writes for The New York Times. They sit down together to talk over what really matters in life and share how they're coping during the pandemic. Find their conversation, Giving the Gift of Life to a Stranger, on our website, aspenideas.org. Let's return to our featured conversation. Here's Maureen Conway.
2: Let's talk about sort of the implications of the of the COVID nineteen crisis because, you know, sort of we have this situation right now. We're all kind of in our homes, right? Me with my fake background, um, you know, sort of we're all separated from each other, maybe with our families or with a couple of roommates or something. But you know, we're not we're not sort of interacting with people very much. Um, at the same time, we sort of see some common news and we're experiencing kind of a, a common threat. Um, maybe not all common news, but, um, and, you know, and, and I think that um, it's been interesting seeing the ways in which some kinds of workers have been uh, lifted up and sort of newly recognized in terms of the value that they bring. If we think about workers in grocery stores, um, workers in the food chain, workers in the healthcare industry, particularly sort of lower, you know, not just the doctors and nurses, but also the certified nurse aides and the sort of technicians and stuff. So, you know, so I'm curious, in, in some ways, we seem more divided than others, but in other ways, it seems like we're more willing to sort of see our need for a kind of common supports and insurances and 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 help. How do you see this crisis affecting kind of our politics and our policy choices? I think what the outcome is going to
1: be, you know, after this has come and gone and is a really interesting question, but I think there's too much uncertainty between now and then to actually make a any sort of definite answer. You, you could, and I've been thinking of stories to write for the paper, for the Times about this, and one of the stories, one of the ideas that has been bouncing around in my head is, will we come out of this with a stronger support for the social safety net? You know, uh, uh, I remember, when the, great, when the Great Recession hit and the, after the housing crisis in 2008, the Obama administration really, really had the battle to get past a, a fiscal stimulus that was smaller, that it was less than a trillion dollars, and it actually passed without a single Republican vote. Now, flash forward to the present, we passed a two trillion package with like a week of debate and I think everybody voted for it. So like, uh, you could say, well, okay, so we're frankly, maybe we're recognizing that having a social safety net is kind of useful, you know? Um, But, you know, I am not enormously optimistic in this kind of forecast. Um, I was talking to... Uh, um, this historian at Stanford who wrote a book about how the only moments in which, you know, humanity has managed to really, really reduce income inequality have been in really big crises like massive wars, pandemics, uh, natural calamities. And he has, you know, he goes back and looks back through the Stone Age up until the, you know, to the late 20th century. And, you know, and, and so I asked him, I called him up and I asked him, you know, does this measure up to the kind of thing that, you know, that will really get us? And, he you know, that, you know, nope. <laughs> nope. It's like, you know, this, this, you really need the, the, the call to arms that you need to really justify this kind of a rethinking of society is a really, really uh, um, big lift. Now, hmm. also I wanted to, you know, I'm gonna tip my hat to the sense of, you know, of community that COVID has built in some places, but I have a hard time running with it very far. I, I think it's probably true of many people that have done amazingly altruistic things and are donating their time and putting their health at risk, to be sure. But across society, um, I'm not convinced. And, and, and in particular, I mean, if you look at how the epidemic, who the epidemic has hit, I mean, it's really hard to buy into the notion that this is a common threat. You know, I think it, it, maybe you point out this moment ago, but you know, uh, uh, in Chicago, the share of African Americans dying of COVID is double their share in the population. Mm-hmm. You know, the death rate of Latinos in New York City is double the rate for non-Hispanic whites. You know, if you go to Manhattan, the the uh, uh, the infection rate per capita is about half, or even less than half, than it is in the Bronx. So, uh, common threat is you know let's take it with a grain of salt here so so this is really i mean what this thread has done is it has in fact it is really reiterated reinforced the kind of like structural inequities that have been with us for a really long time. And I don't really see that changing as we go back to work. I see that, you know, especially if automation is, a, is, is a bigger deal. I think that the people on the bottom half of the, of the wage scale are going to have a way harder time uh, getting their finances and their lives back in order than people, you know, on, you know, uh, higher up on, on the ladder. Um, and, and, but one point, though, I also, and this is, it's clearly affected the, 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 the poor, lower income, and it's clearly affected the black and the brown and way disproportionately. I'm not sure that that will be true, you know, one or two months from now, because I think what's happened now is that COVID has really attacked urban centers most, they're more densely populated and so forth. But when COVID moves over to less populated uh, uh, parts of the country, that's where poor white America predominantly lives. So I would not be surprised to see this kind of disparate impact on the poor there, but the poor there are gonna be more often white than they are here. So um, um, so, 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 just to say, I don't, I don't really see this as a common threat. I think this is a very, very differentiated threat. And then what comes to mind is again, well, what's our shortcoming vis-a-vis other countries that have dealt with this thing? Why are we doing particularly badly? And well, it's the, well, yeah, it's the social safety net thing. We just didn't have one, you know? I mean, alone among the world's rich countries, the U.S. is facing the epidemic with 27 million people that don't have health insurance. We are facing it with the stingiest unemployment insurance system in, amongst the rich countries in the OECD. We don't have mandatory sick leave. We have virtually no uh, um, uh, mandatory uh, childcare. So you know we're we're entering this with a real, really soft underbelly. You know, I mean, if anything, this is you know proving to us that public goods are actually very valuable. Excuse me, and the U.S. was really kind of foolish not to build some. Um, I I, uh, in in other talks I've given about about this book about American poison, I often stop at, you know, one of the things that that I stopped to mention is is America's infant mortality rate. Because that's, thinking back to how I got to this book, that was one of the first stats that I looked at and said, what? You know, infant mortality in the US um, is amongst the highest in the the OECD. You know, it's maybe fourth from the bottom, you know, Chile, Mexico, Turkey might be below, but it's really scraping the bottom. and what's weird is, like, we have one of the most sophisticated healthcare systems in the, in, in the world. A lot of the technologies that have been developed to keep premature babies alive were developed in this country by American scientists. And yet, we have kind of like the uh, infant mortality rate of Croatia. And so, like, to me, that's always been a, you know, perfect illustration of uh, what happens when you do not build the kind of safety net, welfare system apparatus to put a floor uh, under the the, the lives of of, of people on on, on the unfortunate side of life. But now I think that COVID offers even a, you know, as good or better an example of that. You know, we are suffering um, um, very, very high death rates compared to other rich countries. We have been very, very, had a very, very hard time in slowing this down. We've had, we've been, we've come very close to to face shortage of hospital beds, shortage of ventilators, and 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 again, you know, we do have this with twenty seven million that don't have health insurance, and their odds of going to the hospital, and, 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 and are are probably going to be pretty depressed because of that. Um, and the other day, I was reading about, just to finish this thought. The other day I was reading about Sweden. Now, Sweden is following an entirely different strategy for COVID. It's, it's kind of like they've let people, you know, out in the streets, they didn't close schools, they didn't close businesses. They sort of asked people if they could to maintain social distance, but this was kind of voluntary. And in part, it's because I guess the Swedes are sort of like respect authority more, maybe, and so they they voluntarily stayed at home and things. Uh, but also um, what I've read is that Sweden is kind of pursuing more of a strategy of herd immunity. Like the idea that if enough of their population gets, gets this, this virus, um, you know, the, the, the country as a whole will become more or less immune. And numbers that I've seen is that you need about two thirds of the population to, to, to have been hit by the virus to achieve this sort of herd immunity. Um, and so I was thinking, well, how come Sweden follows that strategy when well, certainly we're not. We're trying to, to to the best we can to really tamp down on the disease. And one of the thoughts that came is, well, you know what? Sweden has a much, much stronger uh, uh, health and in, healthcare infrastructure than we do. I mean, like in terms of available beds and available respirators and available fish, physicians. You know, so so the the U.S. has two point six doctors per thousand people. Sweden has four point one in, in its public healthcare system. By the way. Um, And also because of this kind of like more robust safety net, one of the things is is that Sweden does not really suffer a lot of the really bad health outcomes that are uh, one of the consequences of America's more entrenched and deeper poverty. So their life expectancy is higher. They have fewer uh, chronic conditions. Their obesity rate is lower. They have less diabetes. They have less cancer. You know, across the board, you see what I interpret, as the outcomes of a healthier society that has been kept healthier by a very, very generous, uh, well, much more generous than the United States, investment in kind of public goods to keep so many people from falling through the cracks. And well, then that allows them to you know, to think, okay, well, I can let more people get infected. There's gonna be probably less of them that get really terminally ill, and my healthcare system is more support, has, has more capacity to support how, however many ill people we've got. And so I said, well, okay. so, you know, the the, we were unable to build such a safety net. And so, you know, one of the things that that did was it closed off an opportunity. We could never do that because we have so many people on the, you know, on the bottom end of those rungs of health and income and living conditions. And we have a hospital system that really is nowhere near the capacity to support a really big surge in this that, you know, that is really not available to us.
2: So I'm taking a couple of questions from the audience now So one is on top of the divides mentioned class race geography have you looked into the role of faith traditions in the decades that you've been doing research and and what have you learned about uh, the role of, of faith traditions?
1: So so, so let, let me let me address the, the, um, the geographical, distribution question. Are there different expressions of racial hostility ar- ar- around the country? And my answer to that is for sure, yes. Um, um, you know, and there's been not only different expressions of racism, but like a, a very, very uh, a different history. Of how of, of racism and how it has um, affected our um, um, our politics and our institutions um, um, is in it has has been very very different. You know you have and so for instance you have the South which is kind of like the the cradle uh, um, of, of of racial discrimination and segregation because there's historical association with with slavery of course um, and you know and the South. It, in the South in its history had, for instance, one of the most aggressive uh, integrations of the educational system in the country following court desegregation orders starting in the 60s and 70s, which is you know, kind of like go against the grain of what one, what one thinks of the South. But then on the other hand, you know, this very effort towards desegregation delivered the South forever to a party that is today trying to attach worker requirements to food stamps and Medicaid. So, you know, and, and, and the Northeast and the Midwest had a different set of, 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 of racial conflicts. I mean, you know, there's a standard belief that for a long time, there was a standard belief that um, segregation and racial discrimination were Southern problems. And so a lot of the, the, the court and solutions to, you know, to desegregate um, were seen as not necessarily in the, in the Northeast and the Midwest. That proved to be a really big lie. Because the, the you know the, the migration of, of African Americans north, starting around World War One and well you know up until the ni- 1970s, was met with enormous hostility by whites in the north. I mean, um, you can. You know, just look at the history of Detroit, for instance, and like some, some Newark. You know, massive uh, uh, racial riots, enormous conflict with you know b- between black neighborhoods and white police forces. Um, and then, in terms of the in terms of school uh, of, of integration, you know, even as the South was making enormous inroads in integrating inter- integrating its schools, um, the, the 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 Northeast and the Midwest were maintaining extremely segregated school systems. Uh, and they became, and the, the, the school systems in the South became more integrated than school systems in the North um, um, around the 1990s and the 2000s. What's more, you know, resi- you know, residential segregation in cities in the Northeast and the Midwest was was really, really intense up to, you know, peaking in the 1970s. So the idea that there, this was an area of, you know, less racial conflict or, 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 or or more, or more uh, um, racial harmony in industrial America. I mean, look again, the West, the experience of the West again is more mixed and also because I think there lat- Latinos and Asians in, in a way kind of like contributed to the story and I think changed the story in a substantial way. I mean, I think in a way they, they kind of acted as a buffer between the black white divide. And so the black white divide was like, like less prominent in the history of this region. I mean, this created other dividing lines, and I do talk about them in the book, which, you know, notably in, in California, the black-brown uh, uh, conflict has been, you know, has had its uh, um, pretty dark moments. Um, and, but I think that over, overall there, if you look at, you know, patterns of segregation and so forth, it kind of looks less intense um because of this richer ethnic mix because you'll have you know you'll have latinos in the neighborhood you'll have asians in the neighborhood and you'll, you'll have uh, um uh, non-hispanic whites in the in the neighborhood
2: it would be great it would actually be really great to just hear about what gives you hope because i oh. think that that would be helpful
1: okay yeah. so let so what gives me hope i you know all right the us for all the kind of like dismal sort of events in our the history of our racial relations, we did have, you know, the Civil Rights Act. We did have the Voting Rights Act. We did have Brown versus Board of Education. We did have the Fair Housing Act. There have been uh, moments in our history when we've been able, if only, you know, momentarily to push back against discrimination, segregation, often at the cost of a lot of violence and, 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 and you know, uh, the lives of, of, of people of color, but we have been able to push. There has been success at moments of pushing against uh, um, this this against racism and towards creating the idea of a more inclusive society. And so, I take some hope from that. And if you tell me where where would I put where would I look more intensely, where would I think that that, that offers most promise, I would think. I would argue that the, the, the area of most promise is the area of residential integration, where we live, who we live with, who we live among. To my mind, that action there carries the most promise for us to be able to build a more kind of like an inclusive society, a more inclusive sense of what it means to be an American. Um, And that there are some moments of hope there too. You know, uh, residential segregation in urban America was intense in the 1970s. And that's, you know, the late 1960s was this moment where, you know, riots happened across cities uh, in the Northeast and the Midwest, where, you know, the Kerner Commission was appointed to look at, you know, are we going up in flames? Uh, You know, and, and, and then somehow out of this experience uh, you'd say from the ashes of Detroit, the U.S. sort of changed direction. And if you look at, at, at residential uh, uh, li- uh, living patterns by race, um, you know, from the 1970s up until, you know, not that long ago. In fact, perhaps by some studies even continuing today, the U.S. looks, at least urban U.S., looks less and less segregated, more diversified, you know. Um, um, you know so in the 1980s the average white person lived in a neighborhood where 88% of the population was white. And by 2010, she lived in a neighborhood where 75% was white. So there's been, there's been a kind of like, we're nowhere near where we've gotta be, but that movement is, I think, I, is, 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 a, is a dynamic that offers some hope. Now, I'm not saying, well. <laughs> that to wait, or, or even that it's gonna continue, or even that this is as good as I think it might be, but it is a place that I look for for progress.
2: Yeah, great. Well, thank you. Eduardo, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you and it's been a fascinating conversation. And I think, you know, the idea of of sort of integrated living leading to other things is, is a great one to lead with. It gives a local st- state, federal, all a role in thinking about where they, where they play, and, and lots of folks can, can think about what their role is in, in moving forward. So, um, so thank you so much for joining us today. Uh,
0: like I said, it's, a, it's always
2: a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Eduardo Porter is an economic reporter for The New York Times and wrote the book, American Poison, How Racial Hostility Destroyed Our Promise. Maureen Conway is Vice President for Policy Programs and Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program at the Aspen Institute. This discussion was part of the program's Opportunity in America discussion series that explores the changing landscape of economic opportunity across the U.S. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.